Hello, Northridge. How are you guys? Good to see you. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge, and we're so glad that you're here. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online as well. We're happy you're with us. All right, before we jump into this message, I got to cover three obvious things, all right? The first one is this. Yes, I do have a black eye. Um, it's not a great story, or I tell you, uh, but nobody hit me. That's all you need to know. Nobody hit me, all right? So we're good, and I've been excited all week about it being displayed up on a gigantic jumbotron uh, for all to see. Second obvious thing we need to cover is I can't deal with this weather anymore. I, I can't do it. I, I don't know how you guys do it. It's like I'm a Southern boy, and it's just killing me. It's like, I, and I have a question. I don't, I don't want you to actually answer it out loud, but shoot me an email, because I need to know the explanation on this, all right? Uh, yesterday, and it happened again this morning. I saw it happen for a minute this morning. I look outside, and the sun is shining. The sky is completely blue, no clouds, and yet there's still some snow falling. And I don't understand how that's even possible. Like, where is it coming from? Because I know it's not coming from heaven. Like, what is that? It's, it's crazy, but that cold... Uh, is bearable for most of us because we have things like hats and gloves. Uh, but there are a lot of people in our region who don't, who are really struggling right now. So we're doing a hat and glove drive. If you have some extra hats or gloves, you can drop them off the lobby here in Plymouth. You could also do that in Brighton. Uh, and we're gonna collect those and distribute those around the region to those who aren't as lucky as most of us to have hats and gloves. You can also um, just text the word winter the 316, 316, uh, we have a little store set up. If you just want to buy a hat or buy some gloves that we can distribute, uh, I think it's a really powerful way for us to just reach out to those that are uh, less fortunate in our community. So you guys always step up so big whenever we ask you to give like that. So thank you for that. And the third obvious thing we have to cover before we get into this message is that your Detroit Lions are in the playoffs. Come on. Don't, hey, don't tell me that miracles don't happen <laughs> because it's happening. Now, I want to, I want, I want to, I want to set this up a little bit. So back in May of 2023, so last year, before the season started, before training camp had even started, they hadn't even reported yet, I gave a message. And in this message, I was talking about the value of certain items and how much they cost. And this happened. I want you to watch it. They got a clip of it. 150 bucks. All right. How about uh, Detroit season tickets? All right. Somebody said zero. Oh, my gosh. You might go to the hot place for that, man. Okay. Uh, any guesses besides zero? Six, okay. We're going to say 2,000 is about what season tickets were. By the way, I've told you this before. I'm going to say it again because I really believe they're, they're going to make the playoffs this year. They are. They're going to make the playoffs. I believe that. I'm not a prophet, but I really do feel that. And so you should probably get it at this price because they're going to go way up next year. All right. I'm not taking credit for it. Okay. I'm not taking credit. And in the clip, I said, I'm not a prophet, but maybe I am. I've had a lot of guys in the past 24 hours asking me to help them on their DraftKings bets. I can't do it. I got to draw the line somewhere, right? With, but uh, anyway, congratulations, and I think today will be a lot of fun. So we're in this series called In With The New, 
And the whole idea of this series was this phrase that we hear this time of year a lot, at the beginning of a new year, uh, out with the old and in with the new. And the idea is that there's probably some things that we need to let go of from our past, and maybe there's some things that we need to add into our life. And everybody this time of year is hoping and praying that 2024 is going to be better than 2023. But the truth is 2024 is not going to be much different than 2023 unless you change some things in your life, right? Unless you release some things that need to be released and unless you add some things that need to be added. And often we have to release the old to make room for the new. And we've been talking about that throughout the series. And today I wanna share a story with you from scripture that is a really interesting story. Uh, It's interesting, it shows up three times. So, you know, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those four gospels, it kind of follows the life and the ministry of Jesus from birth all the way to where he dies on a cross and resurrects three days later and eventually would ascend to heaven. And so it kind of covers that whole thing. Well, this story shows up in three out of the four of accounts, which is significant because there's not a whole lot of Jesus' miracles and teachings that show up that many times inside of those four gospels. But what's also interesting to me is I realized this week I have never one time in my life preached on this particular story. Not once. I thought, honestly, I thought I had covered every miracle, every parable, every significant story at some point, maybe in the entire Bible, but especially in the Gospels. And I'm going to tell you in just a minute why I think I probably didn't pay so much attention to the story like I should have. But let me just read it to you. And then we're going to talk a little bit today about how this applies to all of us. All right. So this particular account, one of the three accounts, is found in Luke chapter 6. And it says, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, when it says he went, obviously, we're talking about Jesus there, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They're trying to trap him because they had certain rules about what you could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. It says, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Because again, Jesus just broke one of their rules, right? One of the laws of what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, at first glance, when you read the story, even if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand, you have to admit it sounds kind of familiar because it follows a very similar pattern throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, where Jesus encounters somebody who needs some kind of healing and he does it, right? This particular story, again, at just first read, doesn't jump out at anybody like, oh, wow, like, you know, what's going on there? It sounds very familiar, And there's lots of stories in the Gospels about Jesus healing. Lots of stories where he encounters a blind person and he gives them sight, or a lame person and he allows them to walk, or a blind person, he gives them sight. There's stories in there about a woman that's bleeding and he heals her. Story about his friend Lazarus who dies, who's put in a grave, and he shows up and raises him back to life. And I think maybe part of the reason I've kind of skipped over this particular miracle many times is because 
it, it just doesn't seem quite as spectacular as some of the others. I mean, it's hard to compare raising your buddy from the dead with healing a man with a shriveled hand, right? It's just like, wow, it's just not quite as spectacular. But here's the thing about Jesus's miracles. Rarely did Jesus heal somebody just to heal them. There's almost always a second layer. In other words, Jesus was healing that individual and he does something miraculous in their life, but he's also trying to teach all of us in the process about something else. So sometimes we read these stories and we just read the first glance and we don't peel back the layer to say, oh, okay, what is it that Jesus is really trying to do in this particular moment? Now, we're not told in this story whether or not this man was born with the shriveled hand or whether he had a bad accident at some point and it became useless, who knows? But there are some really interesting facts when you walk through the story. One of the first little details, I don't know if you caught it, but it says it was his right hand that was shriveled and useless. Now in the ancient world, almost everybody was right-handed, right? The right hand was the hand of agency. It was the hand in which you did work. And back then, pretty much everybody did work with their hands. And so if you didn't have the use of your right hand, you weren't able to work. So there's a good chance that this guy probably was a beggar. It's also a really good chance that no woman would ever marry this man. Another detail to think about. Another detail is we're told he's in a synagogue. So that means he's a person of faith. We don't know like where he is in his faith, but he's a person of faith or he wouldn't even been in the synagogue. So he's there. If he's a person of faith, at this time, he probably would have been familiar with some of the stories in the Old Testament. He might have been familiar with the story in 1 Kings in the Old Testament where there's a man with a shriveled, useless hand, and he's healed. And I bet that story gave this man hope. So I bet this man had prayed over and over and over again that God would heal his hand, but nothing happened. But one of the most interesting facts about this story to me is that almost every single person that Jesus healed in the New Testament, that person asked him for the healing, right? There's so many examples of this. There's a leper who comes to Jesus and asks him to be healed. There's a man with an epileptic son who comes to Jesus and begs for his son to be healed. There's a blind guy by the name of Bartimaeus who apparently yells so loud from the side of the road when Jesus is walking by that the whole entourage stops and Jesus heals him. But this man with the withered hand never asked. He never asked, and, and we, we don't even know why. Maybe, maybe he was shy. Uh, maybe he had doubts that Jesus could actually heal his withered hand. But most likely, in my opinion, is not that he doubted that Jesus had the capability to do it. I think he doubted whether or not Jesus would be willing to do it. Because deformity in the ancient world often came with a stigma, even more so than it might in our culture today. Because in the ancient world, the stigma was spiritual. So if someone had a disability, or if someone had like this man, this withered hand, the assumption would have been that they had done something wrong, or maybe their parents had done something wrong, and this was God cursing them. We see examples of this throughout scripture, of this attitude, and Jesus tried to correct it on a regular basis, but people had that assumption. If something had happened to you physically, it's because you messed up and God was punishing you. 
So I think it's quite likely that this man is in this synagogue, he's in this church service, and he has a shriveled hand, and he's likely got it tucked up inside of his robe because he doesn't want anybody to know, and he doesn't want anybody to see. And he doesn't have the courage to even think that he's worth being healed. Now, there's two statements that Jesus makes to this man that, oh, I, like, I would have wanted to crawl under a rock and die. Two things he says to him. The first thing that he says to him is get up and stand in front of everyone. He doesn't just say get up. He doesn't just say get up and stand. He says get up and stand in front of everyone. This is this guy's worst nightmare, right? He has spent his whole life trying to manage this withered hand, trying to hide it, trying to keep it secret, hoping that nobody would notice it, right? And what Jesus asked him to do is stand up in front of everyone. In other words, expose the thing that brings you shame. Expose the thing that you think is ugly, that you're trying to hide. Jesus deliberately calls on this man to do this. And in this moment, he stands up with his lifeless hand tucked inside of his robe in front of everybody. And we don't know how long. We don't know how long this guy is standing up there while everybody is staring at him. But that's not the worst part of this. It's not just that he had to stand up in front of everyone. It's the everyone that he had to stand up in front of that he didn't want to, right? This group of people, this religious group of people, this is the last group of people that he would want to stand up in front of. One commentary that I read this week said that these were healthy-handed religious people, right? Healthy-handed religious people. That's who these guys were, right? Healthy-handed religious people who had a strong right hand that they could use to greet one another. Healthy-handed religious people who had a strong right hand to do important work and to live out their purpose on this earth. Healthy-handed religious people who had a healthy right index finger that they used to point at people that they didn't think were worth God's love, they didn't think had value, they thought were outcasts, and they thought did not deserve God's grace and love. Those are the people that he has to stand in front of. And of course, as you might imagine, Jesus knew all about the religious culture of that day, right? He knew all about it. He knew that that religious culture of the day, which by the way is not that different from the religious culture of today, was a culture that was very exclusive. At times it was very judgmental. It often had this environment, this feeling of superiority, and it was supremely unloving. And we see that even in this text we just read, right? The religious people are gathered there, not really to worship God, but to catch Jesus in a trap. Right? These religious people who thought that they knew God so well. They thought they knew God so well and they thought there's no way that God would heal somebody on the Sabbath. They thought they knew God so well and they thought that knowing God well and pursuing God was all about following the rules. And following the rules were more important than helping people, especially a person with a shriveled hand. Then there's a second statement that Jesus makes to this man that would have made him just want to crawl under a rock, and that was this, stretch out your hand. He says to him, I want you to stretch out your hand. Right? The one thing that you are most ashamed of, I want you to stretch it out. See, this man didn't want that. You don't go to a synagogue to expose that which you're ashamed of, and not just that. This was the one thing the man with the withered hand could not do. 
Do you think for a second he hadn't tried a thousand times before to stretch out his withered hand? He had tried again and again and again in the privacy of his own place to stretch out his hand. But for some reason, even with all of his will, those neurons just would not fire. He couldn't do it. And Jesus asked him to do the one thing he can't do. And the reason I think that Jesus does that is because it's going to be in this man's weakness that would become the hinge of this whole story and it would become the turning point of his life. Now, as you might imagine, this story is not just about the man with the withered hand, right? There's another layer to it that applies to all of us. And one of the things I think you have to understand is that the greatest turning point of your life would often hinge not from discovering your greatest strength, but from acknowledging your greatest weakness. Again, he was not asked to do what he could do. He was asked to do what he couldn't. And he must have thought to himself, my whole life I have spent trying to manage and protect and hide this thing. And all that's undone, this is the worst moment of my life, until it wasn't. Now, if you were to study some of the greatest uh, movements of transformation in individuals or in communities or even in societies, if you were to study the greatest movements of God throughout history, right, the greatest moments of revival that have happened in history, for individuals, for communities, for societies. It's almost never based on their strength, but on their weakness. It almost always came, that transformation or that revival or that move of God almost always came when there was a person or there was a group of people who felt a need so great that they realized they had nothing to lose and they had nothing to hide anymore. It came an honest, gut-wrenching confession of need and shame and ugliness and fear. The problem with that is most of us don't like to talk about those kind of things, right? I mean, here's the truth about me. The truth about me is that most of the time I want to project to you guys and I want to project to anybody else that I come in contact with that I am strong, that I am gifted, that I am clever, that I'm self-sufficient, that I'm confident, that I'm secure, that I'm in control, that I'm the kind of person who doesn't get black eyes. That's how I wanna project myself. But the truth is that sometimes I am weak. Sometimes I'm really lonely. Sometimes I'm empty. And most of the time, I do not have my stuff together. I, I wanna make it look like I'm always thriving, but sometimes I'm just surviving. And we are all tempted sometimes to betray ourselves, to project that we have it together a lot more than we actually do. And it's embarrassing to admit that, I get that, right? It's embarrassing for me to admit that there are times, even in the midst of writing a message where I'm asking God to help me and give me the right words or the right story or the right thought or the right with, even in the midst of that, I am actually tempted to craft a story in such a way that it makes me look like a better father or a better husband or a better pastor than I actually am, right? There are times when I'm hanging out with friends that I try to portray as if I am more spiritual than I actually am. And listen, at the end of the day, until we see our need, Jesus can't be our savior because we don't think we need one. 
We think we've got it all together. We can do this on our own. And that's not a small thing because being saved means being healed. And this man with the withered hand, he knew he needed healing and he also knew he could not do it for himself. He couldn't. He was helpless in this situation. He wasn't uh, there to try to get Jesus' attention. He wasn't going to beg. Listen, this man was at a place in his life where he had no hope. So he wasn't gonna ask Jesus to do anything. He wasn't gonna beg. He wasn't trying to get his attention. He was just there. And Jesus points him out in the midst of this crowd and he says, stand up in front of everyone and I want you to stretch out your hand. And the man did it. He stood there in front of everyone, in front of all the people that he never wanted to be seen by. He stood up there in front of uh, everybody with the hand that he never wanted to be seen, he never wanted to be revealed, he never wanted to be exposed, and he stood there in front of Jesus and in front of God and in front of his own people, and he stretched out his hand. And scripture says it was healed instantly. Now, I wonder when I read this story, and I bet you're wondering it too, why did Jesus do that? Because he didn't have to do that, right? I mean, Jesus could have spotted the man and then after the service was over, just kind of bumped into him in the lobby and been like, bro, I, I saw what's going on with your hand, man. What? Let's go back in the alley and I'll, or go back to my office or whatever and I'm gonna like do my thing and you're gonna be good. Like he could have done that, but he doesn't. He makes this man stand up in front of everybody and stretch out his hand. And so you have to ask, why is that? And here's where we get to the fact that when Jesus was healing something, someone, often it wasn't just about the healing. There was another layer and he had to pull that back. He had to peel that back. See, why would he make this man's weakness so transparent? And I think that maybe, maybe it was because Jesus was trying to begin a new kind of community. He was trying to create a new kind of community where people who were needy, and people who are imperfect and people who are in trouble and people who are deformed and consider themselves ugly and shamed would be particularly celebrated. I think that's what he was doing in that moment. See, that healing was not just for that man. It was for everybody in that room, everybody that was there and gathered. He was teaching them what community was really about, what church was really supposed to be about. Because I think the reason he did this is because shame can be hidden or shame can be healed, but it can't be both. You understand that? I want you to think about that inside of your own life. Your shame can be healed, or your shame can be hidden, but it cannot be both. That's why we have passages in scripture that will remind us of things like this, James chapter five. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, what's the word? Healed, right? This idea of exposing your shame, of confessing that you don't have it all together, these things that we hide and protect and try to make sure nobody sees. This is not about guilt. This is not about embarrassment. This is about healing. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I think what Jesus was trying to do was teach this in a very powerful way. And I'm not suggesting in any way, listen, this is important, I'm not suggesting in any way that you walk out of this auditorium today or you walk out of whatever room, maybe you're watching this online and you find the first random stranger and you say, I just gotta tell you my deepest, darkest secret right now. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a healthy way of like exhibiting what Jesus is talking about here. But I don't, do know this, 
um, a church cannot become the church when people are hiding. So maybe this is your day. Maybe this is your day. Maybe this is the day that you stretch out your withered hand to a trusted brother or a trusted sister about your shame. Because confession is not doing something about your sin. People get really confused about this. Confession is not doing something about your sin. Confession is admitting that you can't do anything about your sin. I've uh, been a fan of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, for a long time. Uh, I've just seen so many people impacted by it over the years. Had a very close family member who went through it years ago and it saved his life. Um, I have had numerous friends go through AA. I've been to many AA meetings with them to support them and encourage them. And I always find it just such an interesting community of people. And if you go to an AA meeting, I'm not sure how many of you have ever been before, but if you've never been and you go and you feel like you wanna say something, there's a very common way in which you would begin that. Like if I'm there and I wanna speak up, I would say something like, hi guys, uh, my name is Pete and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody in that gathering, whether it's five people or whether it's 25 people, are gonna look at me and they're all going to say, hi Pete. And it's like this warm welcome. It's like this warm hug from a distance because essentially what they're saying in that moment is even as you confess that which you are embarrassed by or scared of or have no control over in this moment, you are welcome here. We are glad that you are here. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to this place. And we're proud of you because you just named your shame. So I don't know what stretching out your withered hand looks like. Maybe it's saying, I am an alcoholic. Maybe for you it's saying, I'm a sex addict. Or I'm a bitter, resentful person that burns so many bridges. Or maybe it's I have a pattern of lying in my life. Or I have a pattern of cheating in my life. Maybe the shame you carry and your withered hand is not something that you've done, but it's something that's been done to you. Maybe you're the victim of sexual abuse and you've carried the weight of that shame for so long. I had a man last night after the Saturday service who sent me an email late last night. He's in his 60s and he said in his email that he had been sexually abused as a child and this email that he was sending to me was the first time he had ever told another human being. For six decades, he carried the weight of that shame six decades he felt that weight and I could just picture, I don't know if this is true because I'm not him, but I could just picture him sitting at his computer typing that email to me and some of that shame just starting to melt away. Rarely is the healing of shame something that happens in a single moment. That hasn't been my experience. My experience is it's been a process, but usually there's some kind of turning point in it and I'm praying that was a turning point for him and I'm praying that today will be a turning point for some of you. There's a, oh, go ahead, sorry. Um, there's this friend of mine that has an AA group, AA community, and he says that in their community, they say, the worse your story, the warmer you're welcome. And I love that. I just love that. You see, I, I think one of the secrets of AA and why it's been so effective for so many people is because that they actually have discovered that the recognition or the public confession of an inadequacy is in itself a spiritual achievement that should be celebrated, right? They figured that out. 
Just admitting I've got a problem, admitting that there's sin in my life, admitting that there's a pattern, admitting that there's shame, admitting there's something that I can't control or fix or manage on my own is a spiritual victory that should be celebrated. And I think the church has a lot to learn about that because often in the church, we have it backwards, don't we? Because church has, in our culture, often become the place where we come to project that we are perfect, to project that we have it all together. We may fight with our spouse like cat and a dog all the way to church, but when we step out of that car and we walk through the building, we are gonna hold hands and we are gonna smile. <laughs> he said amen. Yeah, he's been there, I've been there, we've all been there, right? Like, it, that's what it's become. And there used to be this phrase talking about wearing your Sunday best. Well, we don't worry about that anymore, but we still try to put on our Sunday best, right? By projecting this image of I've got it all together. And we have it backwards at the church because people are afraid to admit that which brings them shame because often we treat them as if they are an embarrassment to our movement. And so they hide that shriveled hand inside the robe just like this guy in the story did. So I can't speak for every church in America, but I do wonder what would Northridge look like if we became a place where we welcomed people with a withered hand? We welcome people who crawl in here under the burden and the weight of their shame. So Northridge, welcome to the community of the withered hand. My name is Pete and I'm a sinner. And I heard like two people say, hi, Pete. We're the worst AA group in history. So let's try it again. My name is Pete and I'm a sinner. There we go. That felt like a big warm hug. Kind of want to confess some other stuff to you guys, but I'm not. The community of the withered hand. What would it look like for us to become that kind of community? I think we'd have a hard time packing people into this place because everybody would wanna be here. You see, the idea of the church is that we come and we bring what in our life needs to be healed. Welcome to the community of the withered hand. See, I wanted to speak on the story not only because I had never spoke on it and I thought it would be fun to kinda of dig into it, but I also wanted to speak on the story because I have a lot in common with this guy and I bet you do too. But the truth is some of us are just a little bit better at hiding our withered hand than others are. We think that uh, we can maybe deceive the people around us, and, and maybe, maybe, but in the end, you just deceive yourself. First John 1 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So see, there's some of us that are just hiding, but it's not doing us any good. We're just missing out on the healing Right? We're deceiving ourselves in that moment. So here's the question for you. Just think about this in your mind and in your heart. What is your withered hand? What is your shame? What is it that you cannot fix or heal or manage on your own? You know, there's 12 steps in AA, right? And often those first three steps can be summed up as saying, I can't, God can. I think I'll let him. I love that. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. Like, so what is it in your life right now that you cannot fix 
and heal and manage? What is it that you've been carrying around a burden of shame? Again, maybe it has to do with something that you've done that you're embarrassed by. Maybe it has to do with a divorce that you went through that's left you shattered. Maybe it has to do uh, with something that happened to you at some point in your life and you just carry it around and it's like this dull weight. You don't, you've lived with it so long, to be honest, it's, it's actually become a part of your identity. And, and it's weird because you don't want it, but you also don't know who you'd be without it. And I wanna encourage you today to let it go. So I want us to try something, and I'll be honest, I've been really, really nervous about this, but I wanna do it because I think that this could be a turning point. This could be the hinge in your whole story. And I'm gonna give you an opportunity in a minute to stand if you wanna release some shame. And again, I don't do it to embarrass you in any way, but I want, I want there to be a moment for you where you say, I'm gonna start this process of healing and letting God do what only God can do because I've tried it on my own for so long and it's not working. And I wanna finally let this stuff go. I'm gonna be the person that God created me to be. I understand that I can't, that God can. And today I'm gonna let him. I'm gonna let him. So just one rule, and here's the rule. If you're here with a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a cousin, doesn't matter, whoever you're here with, if they choose to stand today, the one rule is you don't get to ask them about it on the way home, okay? You can't ask them about it tonight. This is a big moment for them. They'll tell you their story when they're ready, all right? So give them that space to tell their story when they're ready to tell that story. This isn't the time to pressure them on this because this is a significant moment for them significant moment of courage for them. And we need to give them that space to do that, all right? So I'm gonna ask you all to just bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're here, and there's a burden of shame that you carry in your life, again, maybe something you did, maybe it's something that happened to you, but it's something you've been carrying for a long time and you're finally willing to admit that you can't fix it, heal it, or manage it. On the count of three, I'm gonna ask you to stand up and I just wanna pray over you, okay? So if you're here and that's you, I'm gonna say to you exactly what Jesus said to the man with the withered hand. Stand up here in front of everybody. One, two, three, stand up. Now, if you're standing, I want you to look up here for just a second. I'm gonna look into as many of your eyes as I possibly can. And I wanna to say to you, I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. I don't know if I was sitting where you're sitting, if I would've stood, but you did, which took a tremendous amount of courage. I also wanna to say to you, no matter why it is that you're standing right now, you are welcome here and you're loved. You are fully known and fully loved by the God of this universe. And there's nothing that you could do in this moment to make him love you any more or any less than he already does. Do you feel that? I do. I'm proud of you, really proud of you. So let me pray for you right now, okay? Heavenly Father, I pray for every single person 
that's standing in this room right now or standing wherever they might be watching this message. Maybe they're standing up in the middle of their living room or Starbucks or wherever. I pray for them because I know it took a tremendous amount of courage. And God, they stand here admitting that they cannot fix, heal, or manage the shame that they have in their life. And they're asking you in this moment, God, to heal them, to help them begin the process of releasing that shame so that they can become the man or the woman that you've called them to be, so they can live out their purpose, so they can love in the way that they wanna love. God, I pray right now that they would literally feel that healing starting to happen. If you're standing right now, you can take a seat. And God, we just thank you for this moment. We thank you for what you're doing in this room. I thank you for every person who stood. And I pray that they will walk out of this place feeling your love and your grace quite possibly more than they ever have. For it's in your holy and your precious name that we pray. Amen. That, that's church, right? That's church. That's the community of the withered hand. Um, you know, the past couple weeks here at Northridge, we've been talking a lot about um, life is better together because we really believe that. And I think too often we live our life as if God wants us to get it all right on our own. There's a little story. I don't have time to tell it. There's a little story in the Old Testament about a guy named Moses that God called him to do something, and he was scared. And he just flat out told God, I can't do it, I'm done, I give up, I'm out. And it's interesting how God responds to that because God doesn't say back to Moses, Moses, you need to try harder. Moses, you need to pull yourself together, reach deep down inside of you and get out there and do it. God doesn't say that to Moses. You know what God says to Moses? He says, what about your brother Aaron? Like, he loves you. In fact, guess what, Moses? Aaron is on his way to see you right now, and he's excited to see you. What if your brother Aaron does this with you? You see, in spite of what we think in our culture is courage, uh, most often in the eyes of God, one of the most courageous things that we can do is just ask for help. And I know that sounds like super simple. I also know it can feel kind of scary. But there's something about asking for help that releases God's grace and God's power in our life. And maybe some of you need to ask for some help. Maybe there's something you fear, maybe there's some kind of circumstance you're dealing with or a sin or struggle and you just need to invite somebody else into your life to help you walk through that. That's why community is so important to us here at Northridge, right? We love what happens here on the weekends in these big gatherings. We have these powerful moments like we just did earlier or during worship, right? But we also understand that sustained life change happens best in the context of community. You need some people around you, right? We can't do this on our own. It's why we have men's groups and women's groups and couples groups and care groups and financial groups and you, you name it, anything you're sure, we probably have a group for it here at Northridge. And if you've never taken that step to get connected here, I just wanna encourage you to take that step to be courageous enough to say, you know what, I need some help. I need some community. I can't do this on my own. And so there's a couple ways that you can do that. If you're here in Plymouth, 
On the far side of the lobby, there's a little area you'll see, Life is Better Connected. There's some people there that will help you walk through the process of getting connected. If you wanna do it on your own, just pull out your phone right now, text the word BETTER to 31616, and we'll just send you. You're not committing to anything when you do that, by the way. We're just gonna send you a bunch of list of options of different things that we have here at uh, Northridge that you can get connected to. I'm telling you, it might be one of the most important things you do in 2024 is just get connected to community. Be willing to say, I need some help. It's one of the most powerful things that you can do. Thank you guys so much for being here today. I hope you have an amazing week and go Lions. God bless.